So tonight and tomorrow is the 12th yard site of Mori Varabi Harav Yehuda Amital. And of all the shiurim that I try to record throughout the year, try to spread Torah, the two hardest are, of course, the recordings to try to capture my two Rabbanim, my two Rabbanim Mufakim Rav Yehuda Amital and Mari Varabi Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. It's so hard to convey that feeling, not just of a teacher, not just of a role model, not just of a Revi Mufak that you spent 30 plus years with, but someone who so deeply shaped your identity. The only word I could use, and I used this word a few weeks ago when I was speaking in the community for Shavuos, I'm not inspired by them, I'm not shaped by them, I don't use them as a role model. All those things are true, but I'm literally haunted by them. I live my life as best as I can based on their example, based on their ideas, based on their personality. But I also think about them so often during my life as if they've invaded my my own conscience. I'm sitting here recording at my desk in the lunch foot, and I'm looking at the picture of a Valmital on my wall and the picture of Aaron on my wall. How do you convey that type of intensity, that level of experience to someone who didn't have it, maybe they never had it in general? I feel inordinately blessed to have been given that tzchus by a Kodesh Baruch It's probably the gift of my life. Three or four gifts when I think about what Hashem gifted me with, my wife, my family, living in Eretz Yisrael, of course being able to learn and teach Torah. But on top of that, having met these titans, there's no other way to describe them. And to a degree, I think much of the English-speaking world appreciates and understands Rav Lichtenstein. I think fewer appreciate Rav Amital and how he shaped uh, modern modern Jewish consciousness, modern Torah consciousness. My dream, one of my dreams is to have enough time just to take some time off from giving shir and be able to write a, a, a book or say for collecting Rav Amital's Torah because I just don't feel that, especially the English-speaking audience, has sufficient appreciation. I think in Eretz Yisrael, you say the name Amital, you say the name Rev Amital, people from across the spectrum stand at attention. And there's schools named after him and babies named after him. I think that in the American scene, American scene, the overseas English-speaking scene, there's not that much recognition outside of the circles of people who learned in Gersa. When that would be my dream to give people an appreciation of what he was and what he stood for. So, what was I thinking about today? I just spent a few minutes, not just with my normal thinking about Rav Amital, but trying to hone in, focus. What I, what I want to experience this year, what aspect, what angle of my relationship with him. And the following thoughts hit me. There really are two parts of my identity which Rav Amital opened and, and, and developed and exposed me to. There were completely, completely absent in my background, in my upbringing, in my education, in my outlook. And for the first time today, I spent a few moments thinking about, do they correlate or are they separate? Anyone who learns Gemara Lambdas is always trying to take details in Shas and combine them into larger principles. It's called Lambdas, where you take an assortment of details in the Gemara about a particular halacha and you try to build, well, what does this demonstrate about the nature of the halacha? And then once you can categorize it and catalog it, then you can apply the halacha to other areas of shas. I sometimes tell people that lambdas can be reduced into three steps. 
you induce, you define, and then you broaden and apply. You induce a concept from a detail. You try to define that concept, and then once you define the concept, you can then apply it with breath. You can spread it to other sigils that don't seem to be naturally associated with the sigil you're learning. So every lambdan tries to take things which seem different and seems isolated and to fuse them and to connect them. So I was thinking today about the correlation between two aspects that Rav Amital cultivated in me. I'll describe the, abstract, the aspects or the features separately, and then I'll try to share how I feel they may interact. I'm still exploring their synergy or exploring their cross-pollination. One aspect he opened in my mind is how you view religious and human drive in others, how you view religious drive and success in yourself, and then, of course, what this leads to in terms of your own authenticity. One of the formative stories of the yeshiva, the one that's less known, the boys gathered in Rav Amital's living room somewhere around 1968 in the aftermath and the euphoria of the Six-Day War. And there was this whole contingent that was, so to speak, on its way to Merkaz Harav, which was the established Datilu Yeshiva, led by Hanan Parad, led by Yol Benon, led by Yaakov Medan, again, different roles and different ages, but that was part of the group, the well-known members of that group. And they asked Rav Amital, what will make your yeshiva unique? And he told the following story, which I've told several times, but to me it's, it's a game-changer. told the story of a Hasidic Rebbe in Europe whose chassid got caught stealing. And they threw the chassid in jail, and they called for the Rebbe, and the Rebbe came and consoled him and comforted him, and he took him out of jail. And a few weeks later, the same poor chassid got caught a second time, and they called the Rebbe, and the Rebbe came in and said, evidently you've got chronic flaws, I do as well. And he took him out of jail, and he bailed him out. And a few weeks later, the same wretched chassid got caught a third time, called the Rebbe, the Rebbe came, evidently you're kleptomaniac, this is my my English that I'm adding, you know, my, my sense of humor, not such a great sense of humor, but evidently you're a kleptomaniac, I've got my own obsessions and addictions, and he took him out. A few months after the third offense, the Rebbe dies, and a few weeks later, the same chassid gets caught a fourth time, and they say, call the Rebbe. The Rebbe shines starb, and the Rebbe died already. So they say, call his son, the son who succeeded him, and the son comes into the jail cell and starts lambasting this poor chassid, ranking him out, scorning him, chastising him. This is how you honor my father's legacy. He was there for you through thick and thin. This is how you recompensate him. Langer in jail, waste away in jail for a couple of days that you internalize your criminal deed, and then maybe I'll take you out. And this poor chassid starts crying, and he says, Rebbe, you don't understand. Ich bin a Russia. Ich bin a Ganev. I'm a Russia. I'm a Ghana. Ich bin ich kein Sadik. I'm not a Sadik. Do you do as a Rebbe for a Tzadikim? You're a Rebbe for a Tzadikim. Ich bin ich kein Tzadik. Ich bin a Ghana. Ich bin a Russia. I'm a Russia. Dein Tata, your father, Eres Gizan, a Rebbe for a Shayim. He was a Rebbe for a Shayim. I need a Rebbe for a Rebbe for a Shayim. I need a Rebbe for a Shayim. I need a Rebbe for a Shayim. I don't need a Rebbe for Tzadikim. So Rav Amital turned to the Talmidim around the table and he said, there are plenty of yeshivas for Tzadikim. I want to open a yeshiva for a Shayim. And Rav Amital, whenever he would tell us this founding father story, this is like the founding story of the United States of America, of the Shivat Haaretz Empire, he said, 
And Hashem got revenge on me and he gave me yeshiva for tzaddikim. And everyone would start laughing. But I think what the story bespeaks or reflects is that it's very easy to label people as Russia and Sadiq. It's very easy to start making divisions and lists and registers. But it's all false. Because there's a part of us that's a Sadiq and there's a part of us that's a Russia. And sometimes we behave based on our better light and sometimes we behave based on our lesser lights. And sometimes we're a Sadiq and sometimes we're a Russia. Instead of preening around and masquerading as Sadiq in Russia, just try to be as embracing and expansive and understanding and tolerant of people's limitations. This is where I think there's a lot of deep Hasidic roots in Rav Amital. There's always a joke they called Rav Amital the Hasidic Rebbe of Gush. Why? Because anyone would be a Hasidic Rebbe in Gush when held up to Rav Aaron Lechnesin, who was, in theory, perhaps the furthest from the Hasidic Rebbe. But there are some very, very deep Hasidic elements to Rav Amital's idea. And this is one of them to understand that there's a Kedusha within every Jew and... I don't know that it was as ideological as classic Hasidos and as metaphysical or mystical, just simple. Embrace Jews, love Jews, understand human beings, not just Jews. They're limited. And because of that, once you get to that stage, then you can embrace your own limitations. And embracing your own limitations sometimes is harder than you think, especially for driven people. And boy, boy, were we driven in yeshiva. You talk about a taskmaster, not by what he said, but by what he did. Just imagine living in the halo of Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, who at least as legend would have it, slept four hours a night, would time his exit from the base matters based on how long it would take him precisely to return the svarim, walk to the bus stop, and get, whose entire life was lived with such moral, religious precision and such intense commitment and devotion. I mean, you, you felt cornered. I call this the moral, the moral challenge. You had no room and no daylight for moral or religious um, weakness because you just saw how powerful, how torrential Rav Lichtenstein's example was and how demanding he was of himself. And you was just trying to keep up. But that could be very, very tormenting. That could be very, very oppressive. And Rav Amitam was the counterbalance. And he reminded us, accept your humanity. Realize you're not a Malach Hashares. And Rav Amitam spoke about it, but it didn't come across with the same verve and the same intensity as this drive to be an angel. And Rav Amitam taught us just to be human beings. Very famous story. So many things that he conveyed by stories. If you're listening to this, I have a series in Yutara about 2021 of Rav Amital's stories, some of the stories that he told us, some of the stories that happened to him, and how I feel my life was changed by the stories. He told us the story of going to a relative of his, it was more Haredi-oriented, and at the bris, they named the child Tuvia. And at the, during the speeches, after the bris, everyone's calling him Tuvia Eloi, Tuvia Eloi, Tuvia Eloi. And Rav Amital said, did I miss something? I thought the name was Tuvia. And the relative said, no, we want him to get used to hearing himself be called an Eloi. Well, needless to say, Rav Amitav went ballistic. And Rav Amitav said, I just want my children to be healthy, emotionally well-balanced, caring over the Hashem. What they do on top of that foundation is their decision. And boy, was that counterbalance healthy for me throughout my own life. And throughout the life of raising my children, I shudder to think, 
I don't want to sound too hyper overdramatic, but I shudder to think how I would have raised my children if I was just operating under this full throttle, full pressure, full gas, full expectation world that Ravaran carved carved for me. And when I look back at my parenting, my, my youngest child is now 16, so I'm at the twilight of parenting. And every time I got to, people ask me this very often, I respond to them when they ask me for general parenting advice. Every time I got to an intersection in my parenting where I had a decision or a dilemma between performance and emotional well-being, I could push them harder to perform more or protect and preserve their emotional well-being by accepting less. I always chose the latter. I always prioritized emotional well-being. And it was hard for me. I had so many expectations for my children, Baruch Hashem. Most of them have met, but there were times I had to walk back, walk it back, dial it down. I have to be happy people. And I cannot tell you how often I just sat there and thought about Rav Amital, and there's no question in my mind I wouldn't have had the courage or the guts to make that decision without the empowerment that Rav Amital provided. So when you accept that people are flawed, you're more tolerant and embracing to others, and you're also more tolerant to yourself. And it's not always easy to be. Oh, it's very easy to be tolerant to yourself if you just relax all standards and discount yourself left and right and just take it easy. But if you are a driven person and you do set expectations up, do you have that other voice inside that reminds you that you are, as Ravami told during his tefillos on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, he wouldn't repeat words. That was his minhag. But the only words that he would repeat is when he got to tefillos Musaf. During the Zichrono section, he would say, and he would sing it and wail it and moan it. And he would say, And a lot of the insiders always chuckle, but we all remark to ourselves, he was trying to stress to us that we have to accept our Ben Adam, we have to accept that we're human beings, with the frailties and the limitations. Now, that, that recognition... That everyone's a little bit of a tzaddik, everyone's a little bit of a rasha, and we're human beings, and that Hashem has realistic expectations for us. That we should try our best to strive, but, and, and again, sometimes that can be taken as too liberal and too relaxed, and Baruch Hashem, Ravaran, supply that energy and that drive and that spark. But that whole attitude leads to tremendous, tremendous authenticity. So much of our self-distortion and false narratives come from when we masquerade as something we're not. And we try to behave and put masks on as something we're not. And so much of that is because we're trying to flee from our own flaws. And when you face your own flaws, and you try to improve them, but you accept the notion that you'll be flawed, and there's nothing wrong with being flawed, then there's a wholeness and a self-recognition, and an authenticity, and an honesty. You don't have to pray. You don't have to present yourself. You just be yourself without presenting yourself. And that's what it created. It didn't just create an orientation. Well, human beings are flawed. Accept their limitations. Accept their deficiencies. Accept yourself. It created a tremendous inner authenticity. And it's something which, as I grow older, I appreciate more and more in people, and of course, more and more in Avodos Hashem. And, and I don't like to say things harshly. I'm getting a feeling that we're becoming more from, but I wonder about the authenticity. And, and 
to be perfectly honest, maybe authenticity or a small dose of authenticity is a worthwhile price to pay for greater piety, for greater coded piety, where everyone acts as they're told and stays in line and toes the line. Who knows? And this is not this is not broad social criticism, just thinking out loud, but it's something that I value so much in myself, in my relationships, the people I seek out to have relationships with. Sometimes people are plastic and they're not really presenting themselves. And, and a lot of it, to be honest, is not deception. It's self-deception. People... And you have to work so hard just to know yourself and to know what you are and to avoid those false narratives. Rav Hamital, of course, his authenticity was homespun and he grew up with his grandmother who lived in his room after she was widowed. And, and I always tell people, there's one type of boy I accept the yeshiva hands down and that's a boy who lives with a grandparent in their room or in their house because there's so much you can get from a grandparent that you can't get from a book. And his grandmother would tell him that the word from which to us seems like the goal we're all trying to achieve. Well, in Europe, it wasn't always seen. There was a, a snicker, snide comment making the way maybe amongst the, grand, the grandmothers of the Grossvard in Stettel in Hungary that the term from was a Yiddish acronym for fear, rishos, venig, mitzvahs, which in Yiddish means a lot of rishos and empty of mitzvahs. If you're from, let's first talk about not how from you are, but how much of an Ovid Hashem you are. And again, from can be many, many things in Baruch Hashem today. It's taken generally as a positive, as a favorable, but sometimes that's why Rav Amital was so sensitive to disproportionate chumros and, and self-aggrandizing chumros and public chumros. <clears throat> and again, I always tell people, you really have to take Rav Amital in the context when he said what he said. Rav Amital's statements are eternal, they can be clipped and pasted from one century to another, just these large panoramic eternal truths. Rav Amital is very contextual. So I hear a lot of people, a lot of Gush insiders, quoting Rav Amital from 1970 and just clipping and pasting it onto, Rav, onto our world. And it bothers me sometimes because he was so sensitive to the vicissitudes and the changes and all of a sudden to, to just ignore that sensitivity and just broadly apply without questioning where have we come, where have we gone to, what have we, you know, how has the world changed. So this is one whole part of Rav Amital's chinuch that's so, so deeply carved my identity. And, of course, the icon of this all is Rav Amital singing, gathering around the students, plaintively crying to Hashem, V'tahir libenu li'avdecha b'emes. Those who have seen the videos, V'tahir libenu li'avdecha 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 ayayayay b'emes. And we all started crying and joining the pursuit of the MS, which we'll never reach, but the pursuit of which is so ennobling and so purifying. And then there's this whole other part, and I call it the Am Yisrael, Geula, Kiddush Hashem part. We're living in history, and Ravamital is a, is a reflection, is a mirror of 20th century Jewish history. And we're part of shaping history, and Tanakh is alive, and settlements have religious meaning, and... And I grew up in this small space in Brooklyn, New York, where Kiddush Hashem was how I acted at the stadium. And if I poured popcorn on the guy next to me, it was a chil Hashem. And then all of a sudden my mind was befuddled because I also heard about Rabbi Akiva who died al Kiddush Hashem. And what does Rabbi Akiva's martyrdom have to do with my acting properly in the baseball game? It was just so, so um, disoriented and just a whole challenge of ideas. And then Rabbi Tal just put it all in order for me. We represent Hashem in this world. When we draw Hashem into this world, that's a Kiddush Hashem. 
when we distance Hashem from this world, that's a chilul Hashem. And that drama has a spectrum to it. Obviously, you can draw Hashem into this world by acting properly. For theory, you could do the same by learning a black Gemara. It's much more uh, historical when you're Rabbi Akiva who does a Kiddush Hashem. But it's not just at the extremes, it's also just the steady, slow, quiet advance of the Jewish people and their state, because their state reflects their condition in this world, and their condition in this world is an index for Hashem's presence in this world. And if there's one value, collectively, that drove Rav Amitel, it was trying to create a Kiddush Hashem, and in particular, a Kiddush Hashem that would and somehow offset the great Chilol Hashem that he personally lived through, the Holocaust. And it was always this, when he, when, he, when he decided to become a minister in the government, the left-leaning secular government of Shimon Peres after Robin's association, and he just said, I just feel like there's such a Chilol Hashem that a Ben Yeshiva, Yigal Amir, murdered a Jewish prime minister, an Israeli prime minister, and if I can, by joining the government, not as a minister of Torism or, or, or uh, just as a spiritual minister, someone that represents religion in the truest sense without any of the political tainting and selling that comes with running Kashrus or education or religious services, I could just restore Hashem's presence to this world. And I came across so often the state of Israel is a Kiddush Hashem. And in fact, we have a government as a Kiddush Hashem, and the government has to be respected even when you disagree with its policies. and and that whole grounded, mature, sober view of redemption, that we're part of a process, but that shouldn't cause halachic, God forbid, compromise, chas v'shalom, and it shouldn't cause irrational thinking, and it shouldn't cause polarization. And to a degree, I've set my life, one of the goals in my life is to create a vocabulary and a lens for people to navigate this process of redemption that we have started but that we have no roadmap for because we never underwent redemption i'm trying to write articles and i hope one day to write a book again so many books i'd like to write none of them will probably ever be written but i just want to try and so much of it as i go back and read ravami tells lectures Oh, that's interesting he said the same thing i said and of course he didn't say the same thing i said i said the same thing he said but subconsciously, and even though I was quoting him, even though I was developing him. and So those are the two major, I try to think large, what are the two fundamental aspects that changed my life? Now, how do they interact? And very briefly, because I don't want this to get too long. Well, this, these are my thoughts, and they're still under construction, so bear with me. On the one hand, um, once you broaden yourself and you embrace the modern state of Israel as a divine process and as, as a Kiddush Hashem, let's not even use the word you are facing the stark reality that not everyone in this country is religious and not everyone in this country is Shemitah and Mitzvah, not everyone in this country. So you need an answer for that. Those answers could be Kabbalistic and those, like Riff Cook, and those answers could be pragmatic, I think. Like, But for Avamita, I think they were just a reinforcement of this Maybe for a shayim. Okay, some people are more shayim, some people are less shayim. So you have more background, less back. It wasn't, put your judgmentalism on hold. Obviously, don't let that tolerance efface your own religious commitment, which unfortunately is one of the problems today in the religious Zionist world. We're just so tolerant and so Israel and so loving to every single Jew that which we're essentially uh, eliminating all of our standards. 
and the standards have to be maintained deeply and forcefully. But once you're going to embrace the process of Medina Sisrael as a Kiddush Hashem, you need some solution. You need to find a solution for non-religious Jews, not just being part of the process, but essentially spearheading and founding the process. On the other hand, so once you, once you start with the Am Yisrael part, you need to have the embracing and tolerance part. The same thing, once you start thinking, and this is a more subtle point, that humans are limited and humans are weak and humans are deficient, there has to be some arena or some field in which they can transcend their limitations. And this is very, very, very deep Hasidic thought. I mean, obviously, at a practical level, humans are weak, and Hashem recognizes that in Malach Hashares, we're not Malach Hashares, in the Torah Malach Hashares, but then you're, you're stuck at a, at a lower level. And how do you climb up? And it can't just be through greater piety and greater... So you climb up through his spotless and chasidus, through commitment to Klal Yisrael and chasidus, and Rami tells manner to be part of this larger process without some of the esoteric, mystical overlays. So you start with one, you get to the other, and I think that the deeper that they're connected, the deeper they settle in, because they represent one holistic idea rather than two separate splinters. If you're someone who is embracing of other people's limitations, then you're going to need some arena in which, in which you can surpass your own limitations. If you're going to embrace the state of Israel as a divine process, you have to find some way to account for, to account for people who just aren't still committed to the classic sense of Harsina, to the classic Torah. So these are some of my thoughts as to how these two groundbreaking ideas shaped my identity and their relationship because everything is always more formative when it's deeply, deeply networked and deeply anchored to some other idea. Those are the things that really, really shape us. Not ideas that slip into our consciousness, but ideas that anchor to other ideas and together form a larger molecule. And those molecules shape us rather than atoms. And these are the molecules that have shaped me. The Amisrel... Sadiqim, Rishayim, tolerating others, tolerating weakness in yourself, forgiving yourself. Once you reach that level, having the authenticity, you don't have to mask your flaws and your failures. This other part of history, nationhood, shaping history, being part of Kiddush Hashem, and how they interact is how deeply they, they forged me. So I miss him dearly, and I hope that People have a better sense, have a better sense of who this person was and how he shaped our thought and our world. He's a Baruch.